Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at GT Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. It's good to be home. Good to be back with you. Nice to see all of your smiling faces and uh, greetings and warmth. And I was sitting up in the uh, loft in the auditorium there in the atrium watching everybody stream in. And I was just so happy to see you. Home is always the prize. We go away, we rest, but we love to come home. And we're so glad to be back with you. Um, I almost had Lisa convinced to let me wear my tie-dyed shirt. But when I put it on, she just said, you know what? You shouldn't wear a tank top. To, shirt, to church on Sunday. I said, ah, oh, fine. Anyway, maybe I'll send you a photo sometime of me in my tank top, but we did have a good time in Hornby, um, uh, and uh, it was a joy to be there and soaking up the sun and the good weather, and I hope that you're enjoying your summer as well. This series actually leads us all the way through summer, which has been fun as well. We kind of broke it up into three sections, and we're nearing uh, that third section now. So in the weeks to come, we'll be talking about the perils that Paul endures. We're going to really focus in on his ministry in different areas and even what he struggles uh, through uh, and what we can learn from that. But today, uh, I've titled this message, Against All Gods. Against All Gods. And the reason why is because we're talking about Paul in Athens. So let me just review just a little bit. Um, we, I can't go all the way back because we're in chapter 17 now, but if I can just review for a moment, what I would say to you is that Paul made a jump over the Aegean Sea from Asia into Europe. And uh, we looked at that a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we looked at him in Philippi, Thessalonica. And then after Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. Those three areas are, are Macedonia. That's the Macedonian area. Greece is broken up into three areas. You've got Macedonia, you've got Athens, and then you have Corinth, which we would know as Sparta. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I want to be from Sparta. That sounds great. Anyway, um, so Paul leaves Berea, because the same story happens over and over again. He goes, he preaches, he gets persecuted, and he, he has to flee. Uh, and he goes to Athens, but while he's going to Athens, Saul, or no, uh, Silas and Timothy stay in Berea because there's a church that has now blossomed and is developing there. And so they needed to set some things in order, but Paul goes down to Athens. And so we're going to pick up the story in Athens. I have a picture because uh, we just came back from that part of the world doing a biblical tour. And I have a picture of uh, kind of walking up into the Acropolis, which is the tallest hill in Athens. The city would have been spread out around the bottom of the hill. Um, and uh, at the top of the Acropolis were temples of worship, many of them uh, kind of signifying that Athens, although no longer a military power, no longer the dominant military force, still very much the philosophical, intellectual, and artistic force of the known world. And so um, this is where people would go to educate. This is where people would go to converse, to talk, to learn. It's the beginning, the seeds of democracy were in, uh, in Greece and in Athens. And so Athens was not big like it is now. Now it's the largest city in all of Greece. Um, but at that point, it was actually smaller than Corinth. Corinth was the bigger 
center. But the unique things about Athens uh, will be discovered as we talk about it, especially these intellectual, philosophical concepts. And so uh, let's start reading in verse 16. Paul's alone in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. And here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, Waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. In other words, there were people worshiping statues, there were um, uh, pillars and temples and burning incense and sacrifices, and every step, he just took a step and there it was again. It was literally full of idols. Um, Historical documents would suggest that there were more idols in Athens than there were in all of Greece combined. And not only that, you were, they would say, the statement was, you're more likely to meet a god in Athens than you are a person. It was, it was everywhere. And so the Bible may be giving us an understatement here to say it was full of idols. It was literally full. You were walking around them on the paths. And you can imagine from Paul's perspective, this guy who is um, a Jew, he comes from a monotheistic perspective and into a polytheistic culture. Monotheistic means the worship of one God. Polytheistic means polytheism means the worship of many gods. And so uh, as Paul makes the jump over into Greece, he meets uh, city after city full of a pluralistic society. In other words, they're looking at many gods, they're seeing them all as valid, they mix them together, they worship certain ones for certain things and others for other things, and they just kind of blend it all together. And so Paul has this calling to this pluralistic society. How in the world do you reach them? How in the world do you share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a culture like that? Well, we'll just, we'll just watch and read. We're going to learn from Paul. We're going to look at how he engages in Athens and learn some things even about our own culture. So let's keep reading. Verse 17, it says, um, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. That's where he starts. He starts with those that he has an affinity with. He has common ground with them. He begins to express the ideas of who Jesus is in the fulfilling of the law and being the Messiah. But he then expands his conversation into the marketplace in Athens. And so this would have been the place where everybody came to do business. It's where the um, it's where the Roman authorities were. It was, you know, it's kind of the center of the city. It says this in the rest of that verse. It says, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So Paul's just saying, okay, God, lead me. I'm ready for a divine appointment. Lead me to somebody and let's have a conversation. And those that were open, he would converse with looking for these divine appointments. Well, he had a divine appointment at one particular meeting. And we're going to read about it here in verse 18. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So it mentions two groups of philosophers here. The first one is the Epicureans. And the Epicureans were very interesting because they would be likened unto our agnostics and atheists in our culture. Because although they did hold to the idea that there was a God, they believed God was distant, remote, and didn't care. 
And they believed that when you died, it was over. There's no afterlife. You die, you're done. And so the, the goal of life is pleasure. And so that's the Epicureans. On the other side, there's the Stoics. And the Stoics, although that word doesn't seem to fit with it, were actually the more spiritual, mystical people. And they would really connect an idea with sort of the uh, mysticism and new age and universalism because they believed that God was in everything. Everything carried this fiery spirit. And, and when God entered that thing, it, although dull, it was still present. And when that thing uh, disintegrated or died, then that fiery spirit went back to God until it came again to some other place. And so they were very, very spiritual. And they had these, these concepts about how God would uh, be a part of absolutely everything. And so everything that happens was because of God's will, good or bad. It's all God's will. And so you have one group that's saying God is not involved, and the other saying that God is in everything. And so these are the two groups of people that Paul begins to engage with. Talk about a mixed bag, right? Can you imagine having to communicate to that kind of a crowd? In fact, that is, the reason why I bring this story to bear for us is because we live now in a culture very similar to this, where there, you, you got to know who you're talking to. you got to understand who it is that you're engaging because you have to understand their perspective before you can allow the gospel to take root in their world. And what we're going to see with Paul is that he ends up being swept up into the elite of Athens and given the opportunity to speak. I want to look now at one more verse. Verse 19, it says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? So, um, I, I learned to say this word Areopagus when I was in Greece, and I'm going to teach you how to say it. Because it's not Aeropagus, it's Aeropagus, okay? Aeropagus. So I'm going to give you now the opportunity to try that as a church. We are Greek. All of a sudden, poof, you're Greek. Ready? Aeropagus. Come on, say it again. You get, nobody moved their arms. You got to move. Come on, everybody, ready? Aeropagus. There you go. Very nice. Okay, so now you're Greek and you can have lamb. Okay, go ahead. Enjoy your lunch. So he, he brought them to the Oropagus. They brought him to the Oropagus. Now, what is the Oropagus? Well, uh, I showed you a picture of the Acropolis. Let, now let me show you a picture of what is known as Mars Hill. And this is a picture from the Acropolis, which is the highest point in Athens. So you have this tall mountain with all the temples on top of it. And then from that tall mountain, you can look over and there's a hill. It's actually a rock and it's called Mars Hill. On the backside is the marketplace. So this is where Paul was at. He was in all of this, this kind of area here. And I took this photo from the Acropolis looking down at Mars Hill, although you would have to climb up to it in order to get to it. The significance was this was a natural amphitheater. The Oropagus was a place, but it was also a group of people. The Oropagus was made up of 30 elite politician-type philosophers who were not only a think tank, but also they were a court. And so anything that needed to be judged was brought to them, especially on like big cases like homicide and other things like that. And so they literally sweep Paul up because of this new teaching. You know, the, the people in Athens are like, hey, we're all about new teaching. We're all about 
you know, uh, more gods. You tell us about your God, that's great. But there's something about this. We need to get you over here. So before this spreads, the leadership has the opportunity to hear about it and to speak into it. And so he ends up being swept up into this combination of politician philosophers, Epicure and Stoic, and he begins to speak. And what he begins to speak helps us so much, friends. It teaches us the value and the competence of contextualization. Let's read it together. Verse 22, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the... Not bad. You did better than the 9 o'clock service. Proud of you. See, Ignite, Ignite though, they get excited. I'm going to be preaching this at Ignite at 2 p.m., Pastor Nilo, you better get him ready, okay, for Okay, enough of that. Oropagus and said, people of Athens, he begins speaking to these people, sitting on this natural amphitheater on this rock, business happening all down and around. They're listening, sitting there, all these leaders, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is a brilliant opening address. It's absolutely brilliant because what he does is he finds a way to affirm them in their culture. It's absolutely amazing. This is what Jesus did with the woman at the well. I don't know if you remember that story, but he goes to sit with her. He's, he's you know, teaching her about the kingdom, about living water, and you know, drink, drink the living water and you'll never thirst again. And he says, why don't you go, says to her, why don't you go get your husband and bring him back? And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. The truth is she had had five husbands and the man she was living with was not her husband. And Jesus knew all this, but he wanted to engage her, to make it in context. And so what does he say to her? You are right, you don't have a husband. Way to go. I get it. I understand you're being honest and I'm with you. And what does Paul do? He does the same thing. I can see in every way you are very religious. Good starting point. Let's go from there. He's looking for common ground. He's looking for a place to stand with him. Now, don't be thrown off by the word ignorant in here because in our context, ignorant is negative. But in this context, it's simply the things that you don't know and you don't know what you don't know. And so I'm here to tell you what you have been worshiping but don't know about. You've actually already been worshiping this God that I'm gonna reveal to you. You just didn't know that's who it was. It's this unknown God. Now, the story of the unknown God is quite interesting. Why would they have a, uh, have a memorial to an unknown God? Well, what happened is many, many years before Paul shows up on the scene, there was a Cretan poet who had this brilliant idea. He said, I'm going to go up on the Eropagus, and I'm going to release a bunch of goats. And wherever they lie down, if there's a temple there, now, sorry for the animal lovers, you sacrifice the goat in that temple. If there's not a temple, then you sacrifice the goat to this unknown God that the goats are now revealing to us because wherever these goats lay down, that's where there should be a God. And so there are over 600 in ancient, in ancient Athens, there were over 600 monuments to unknown gods. 
And so they were just happy to worship and to worship everything. But Paul says, listen, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. Absolutely brilliant. And so what's Paul doing here? Well, I really feel a challenge. And I want to share Paul's challenge that I feel. And what the challenge is simply this, is that we have to discover how to present the gospel in a way that makes sense to the people we want to reach. We got to think about people. We got to think about people because that's what God is hungry for. That's who he loves. That's what he wants. He wants people. He's not looking for systems. He's not even looking for organizations. He's searching for people. And when they're lost, he goes to find them. And so he's doing whatever he can to reach out. And he wants to reach out through us. So we have to discover how it is that we can present the gospel in a way that makes sense to the people that we're actually wanting to reach. This is often the missing link between our purpose and our fulfillment is that we don't know how we should be offering the gospel. So some would say, well, you know what? You just give them truth and they can do what they want to with truth. But I would say that we have to be careful to understand that truth always has a context. Always. It always has a context. And so objective truth being thrown out doesn't necessarily give the context that allows people to attach to the truth. And so we want to give context. We must understand that the goal of the church is to help people understand the love of Jesus, not just hear about it. Yeah, 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 Jesus loves me. I want them to feel it. I want them to experience it. I want them to know that God wants to meet them at their point of need. Can I get an amen? You see, here's the point, and you need to understand this about your church, is that our approach is that we take timeless truth and we connect it to a shifting culture. So if we're taking timeless truth and connecting it to a shifting culture, the way we say it changes. It doesn't mean the truth changes, but the way that we share that truth changes. There has never been a place in the scripture up to this point where they've talked about an unknown God. But it was time. Why? Because the culture allowed the opportunity to speak into it with the truth of Jesus. And that's what we're looking for. So our goal is not to just say it the way we've always said it. Our goal is to reveal the life-giving message of Jesus to Vancouver Islanders. Amen? So how do we do that? Thank you for the applause. I appreciate it. I think the first thing we have to say is just like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, this isn't Kansas anymore. This isn't our monotheistic culture. This isn't a monotheistic culture. This is now a pluralistic culture. This is a, a culture that's steeped in polytheism. And so we're living among many gods. And maybe there's not idols on the street corners, but people have forms of worship, thought processes, even religious point of views that guide them in certain ways. And for us to be able to speak in the truth of Jesus, we need to begin to understand those ways. Why? Because the Bible calls us ambassadors. That's what we're called. And so we're stepping into another culture and we're bringing kingdom culture with us. And so as we bring kingdom culture with us, then we have to begin to express how does this kingdom relate to your life? How does this truth meet a need for you? And so this is where the contextualization comes. We want to help people understand the way of Jesus, truth that is shared, that is understandable. And Paul did this in his address to them. 
We're going to read it in just a minute. He used concepts to help his audience connect to the gospel. And more than that, he quoted their poets. He quoted their unknown God. He used elements of their culture, and he used them in a redemptive way. That's so key. There are things that when we look at culture, we say we got to reject that. There are things when we look at culture and we say we can accept that. And there are other things when we look at culture and we say we need to redeem that. And so we're looking for that. And that's what we see in Paul is he's choosing this redemptive path. And I, I, just, I, want, I don't want you to think that this is isolated to Paul. Because the early church, the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, just a few chapters before this, they met and they said, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles? They're not circumcised. They don't know the law. They, you know, what are we going to do with all of them? And here's what they determined, Acts 15, 19. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And friends, I believe that at times the church has made it difficult for people who are turning to God. It's like a ladder. The deeper we go in our faith, the more we seem to learn and grow and adapt our life and we begin to look more like Jesus. We begin to experience more of Jesus. The problem is, is this ladder can have the truth of Jesus up on the top and I can climb each rung the longer I'm a Christian, Oliver told me this ladder wouldn't fall. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. I don't even like heights. But for the sake of the example, we can hold the word here, and we can yell down to people, and we can tell them what they need to know. We can express truth at this angle. But how many of you know this is not the angle in which we receive the word of God? It's not the angle that Jesus taught. It's certainly not what Paul was doing. But we can. We can stand in our churches. We can stand in our pulpits. We can get on the TV, get on the news, and we can speak from here. Or we can, you know, we can, we can communicate the bullhorn kind of idea from this point. Here's God's word. Climb up to it. People say, I don't even know what you mean. But see, what we learn in Jesus was just the opposite, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down to us. And so what Paul is doing here, thank you, thank you. What Paul is doing here is that exact same thing. He's saying, I want to show you where this already exists in your world, where you are already longing for this. Let me show you what Jesus has done and what he can do for you. You know, it's funny. I had a, a Muslim background believer, uh, someone who's uh, from a different country, who came to faith in Jesus Christ but doesn't understand the West, doesn't understand, like, you know, Canadian culture. That's not their thing. But they're, they know the Bible, and they're Christians, and you know what she said to me? It made me feel like I was standing on a ladder all of a sudden. It really spoke to me. You know what she said to me? Here I am, Pastor Andy, on my ladder. And she said to me, is there a guidebook for Christian language and culture? Because I don't get it. This is a woman who knows the Bible, who preaches Jesus. She is born again, but she doesn't get our culture. Because we can have insider language and we can also have insider culture that when you're in, you're in. When you know, you know. And when you don't, you don't. But the truth has to be that we take the gospel right back down to the people 
who need it the most, who are hungry, who are searching, who are looking, and we give them the gospel in its most beautiful and simplistic form. That's where the church really does thrive. And that's what God's calling us to do. So I want to take a minute now and look at Paul's message to a pluralistic society. We're going to actually read through his message uh, that he gave to them. So you've heard the opening address. He's in front of all these intellectuals, these philosophers. They're really open to new ideas. They have opinions, and they're hearing him for the first time. They're hearing a Jew. Uh, he probably looked like a Jew, and he probably had a few scars on him from being beaten. He was probably a little hunched. The Bible says maybe he had some maybe some bad eyesight. And so here's this figure before them, these elite people, and they're listening to him, and Paul begins to speak. And the first point of his sermon is this, God is the creator. This unknown God that I'm revealing to you is the creator. He's not made by human hands, but he is the maker of it all. Let's read it. Here's how Paul says it. The God who made the world and everything in it, it and it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Remember where he's standing. On the Eropagus, looking at the Acropolis. Temples everywhere. God doesn't live here. God doesn't live in these temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands. In other words, he doesn't need your incense. And he doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything from you. As if he needed anything. Rather, he gives. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is a big God. This is why Paul is making a case for a monotheistic perspective. You don't need a bunch of gods. You just need one. Because he's done it all, and he's over it all, and he has everything you need. And, and so that's where he begins. He establishes the power of God, and he says, listen, maybe you could consider that the gods that you serve are too small to meet the needs that you have. This is a God who doesn't need anything from you. That's a message our culture needs to hear. God doesn't need anything from you. He has something amazing for you. Second thought in, in Paul's sermon is this. God is in control. And I don't care if you're a Christian or not. That's good news. Somebody is in control because it looks a little bit out of control, right? It's nice to know that, isn't it? He guides history. That's the concept here. In verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He says, listen, the reason why you have what you have here is because God has allowed it. God is orchestrating history. God is bringing kingdoms up and kingdoms down. He's talking to a has-been kingdom, the kingdom that's now under Rome as well. And he begins to talk to them about this idea of God directing everything. In fact, he's asserting, I'm here standing before you today. Why? Because God's in control. And God brought this moment about. This is a moment for you and for me. Third thought in his sermon is this. God has set eternity in our hearts. There's a longing in humanity. And it's expressed in what he was seeing all around. There's a longing for God. And God put that longing in us. Look, look at how Paul says, he says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. 
though he is not far from any one of us. So he's speaking now to the Epicureans. He's not far, actually. He's close. He put the desire in you. Reach out for him, and he has something for you. He is near to you. Obviously, you're searching. Look around. Obviously, people are searching. Look around your world. People are searching, and they're open to everything. It's incredible. It doesn't matter where you go. People are looking for spiritual traction in their lives. And I'm just so thankful for the good news because the good news provides meaning for life in the midst of the maker. The fourth point that Paul makes is this. You're not God, but you do bear his image. He gives them great value in that. God provides incredible value for the human being, but don't misunderstand it. You are not God. Now he's speaking to the Stoics. You're not God, but you do bear his image, unlike your idols, by the way. You don't need idols. You're the image bearer. You, as a human, are the image bearer. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... Oh, did I skip something? Did I miss a point? I said God has set eternity in his hearts, but I don't think I read the verse. I need to read that verse before I read the next verse. Backing up. Rewind, team. Edit the video. And go. Okay. The third point was God has set eternity in our hearts. He made us long for him. Okay, so let's read that. Oh, no, I read that. Did I read 28? I need to read 28. Verse 28, please. Okay, and go. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a good verse. We can't miss it. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So here's where he actually uses their culture again and and applauds it, affirms it. Okay, now let's go to the fourth thought. You're not God, but you do bear his image. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. I love the challenge here, even into our own culture, in that, listen, your stuff doesn't equal peace in the soul. There's a part of you that's designed for God, and your money, your new boat, your new house, your new car, it's not going to fill the hole. God is not found there. He's not found in the gold and in the silver and in the accumulation. He's not found in the number of idols you have and the number of stone images you have. He's not there. He's not made in those things. He is greater than that. And just look at yourself because you're an image bearer. Number five, the path to being right with God is repentance and belief. In Jesus. So after all of this, gets a long way into the discourse. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. In other words, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one we have to be right with. Jesus is the one who calls us to himself. Jesus is the one to whom we say, I repent and make you Lord God in my life. And number six, here it goes. The proof of God's power is the raising of Jesus from the dead. You see, this is what sets Christianity apart, friends, is the assertion that we believe that our God came for us, died for us, and rose again, making a pathway to eternity that will never be broken. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I have hope. 
I am redeemed. My home is heaven. I'm secure. I have peace. All of that rests on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so, this is how Paul says it. He, speaking of God, has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. When they heard this, heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, probably the Epicureans, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. You know, if you read this passage carefully, you'll find that they say within the passage, they were just happy to hear all kinds of ideas. Let's just keep talking about it. Let's keep having ideas. But the point is very clear here. There's always more than one response to truth, right? There's always more than one response, no matter how well it's presented. There's more than one response happening right now in this room to this message. There's more than one response right now happening in this room to the assertion that I'm making about who Jesus is. And the truth is, I have very little power over the response. But I know that there's more than one. In fact, Paul says it this way, speaking to the Corinthians. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's one response. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. A second response. And what does this teach me? It teaches me that the cross is a stumbling block. That the cross itself is something people have a hard time getting past. The idea that God would die. The idea that God would be buried. The idea that God would then have to be raised to life because humans had power over him. It, it, is, it is a stumbling block for some who view God in a certain way. But the humility, the restraint, the power of submission to the redemptive plan of the Father is absolutely transforming to some. There's more than one response. And yes, the cross is a stumbling block, but our goal, friends, as Christians, is not to create a new one, not to create other stumbling blocks, not to require people to climb before they receive. So there are key stumbling blocks, the cross, the resurrection, but let's just do everything we can to not add any others. You see, you're not responsible for the fruit of the gospel, but each one of us, you, are responsible for the way you share the gospel. That's the call of this message. That's the call of our God. I want you to think about all the things that Paul didn't say. He didn't require them to take a history lesson He didn't require them to modify their behaviors. He didn't ask them to reject the gods that they currently knew and understood. He didn't even quote, uh, this is as high as I'm going to go because I'm actually scared. He didn't even quote any scripture. Now, I'm not suggesting that all those things didn't follow later as the church in Athens was born through Dionysus. But I will say that when he made his appeal to them, he said, I want you to know one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus 
is who you've been searching for. That's what I want you to know. Jesus is who you've been searching for. So maybe Paul's message is for you today. Jesus is who you've been searching for. But maybe his sermon was about giving you a template for yours. Bow your heads with me for just a moment. Let's reflect and let's pray and let's let the Lord speak to us. Because God is calling us not to cloister in our church, but to spread the good news in this pluralistic culture. And God has put certain people in your life for a reason. And God would ask you to consider how you might engage with those people. Can I encourage you? Keep it simple. Just ask God to give you a heart for the people around you. Just get to know them. Spend some time with them. Love them generously. Listen and learn. Because what you're going to hear is that there are real needs. When people get honest, they share their burdens. So whether that's physical or emotional or intellectual, relational, financial, it goes on and on and on. You, like Paul, can look around and see the need and speak into the need because the Holy Spirit wants to lead you, wants to show you how the gospel fits with that person's need because Jesus came for the whole world. So Heavenly Father, we pray. Oh God, as a church family, we bow together and as a representative of this great house, I simply pray, open our eyes to the spiritual needs around us. Please, Lord. Help us like Paul to see how we can be an ambassador of your kingdom in this culture. Show us, Lord. Show us how. And Holy Spirit, empower us Empower us to meet those needs, to be the means by which you love those around us. And help us share the love of Jesus to anyone who will listen. This is our prayer and our challenge today, Lord. And just continuing to pray, I do believe that there is someone here today and you have become aware of your spiritual need. God is lovingly reaching to you and I invite you to invite him in to your life. A living Lord named Jesus who wants to love you and have a life-giving relationship with you. The Bible says you can open your heart to him and he will come. Maybe that's your prayer. Jesus, I open my heart. I ask you to come. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.